You don't need a high-end designer or a lot of money to get a luxe look. Be your own interior designer with big design, small budget. Here's your host, Betsy Helmuth. Drumroll, please. Today is the big conclusion, the grand finale of our Rainbow Color series. We've covered every other color in the Roy G. Biv and brown and black, and today it is time to tackle neutrals. Before I start with neutrals on today's episode of Big Design Small Budget, I want to start with an asterisk. My asterisk is that I have clients who are addicted to neutrals. If this is you, you know your palms are starting to sweat, you're shifting in your chair, but too much neutral is a problem. Neutrals are meant to be supplemented with some color. Come on, guys. I used to really push my clients to do color. In fact, I used to downright bully my clients to do color. I'd say, come on, don't you want to add personality? Come on, don't you want to make this look special, unique, vibrant, interesting? But recently, I will admit to the error of my ways. Recently, I created a beach house for a lady in Quag who assured me that she had a lot of color in her Manhattan apartment, but really wanted this space to be a completely gray oasis. So I decided, since she already had color in her life, to surrender, to let her do her thing and give her an all gray beach house. And as I was designing it, I'll admit, I had a little bit more fun than I expected. And as I was creating her mood board at the end, the representation visually of how all the new items will look together, I must say I fell a little bit in love. If you want to check it out, you can go to the affordableinteriordesign.com page, go to Meet Us and Betsy Helmuth, and underneath you can see my recent mood boards, and you'll recognize the all gray one in the sea of rainbow-colored, vibrant mood boards. In fact... Of all the designers that work in my firm, I am the one who is definitely the most colorful. I am the one who pushes the color, which is not everybody's jam, pun intended, because jam is like brightly colored sometimes. I couldn't help myself, guys. But um, so I wanted to share that with you, that I do think it's a little bit of a trap to just get stuck in neutrals that feel safe and comfortable, because the joy of neutrals is that they are very unobtrusive. They're modest, they feel organic, they tend to blend into the background and create a very subtle and soothing atmosphere. It's not trendy, neutrals are timeless, and so chances are you're going to feel at home and comfortable with them for years to come. But I just think they're too basic. I just think relying on neutrals as your entire color palette is a cop-out. It lacks personality, it tells me nothing about you. It doesn't catch my eye in any way. I have to really rely on textures because not even patterns really show up on a neutral palette. And textures, if you're shooting for a magazine or a book, they really just don't show up. It's something that you have to experience in the space. And also, you have to spend a lot of money on getting those amazing textures. Because if you buy an all-beige room at Ikea, If you source an all gray space from Overstock, it's going to look like you didn't make any choices. It's going to look downright cheap. It's not going to feel luxe. It's going to feel blah. So 
I wanted to put that out there because it's a problem I've been seeing. That being said, I think that people should start with a foundation of neutral. I love neutral wall paint because it's such a chameleon. You can put different drapes if you want to swap them out as you change your color palette over the years. You can change out your throw pillows on that neutral sofa and it's always going to sing. So neutrals provide an awesome backdrop and I really rely on them for upholstery for paint, um, for those larger swaths of sort of the canvas on which I'll overlay my colorful accents. Let's start by talking about white. White does not actually count as a Roy G. Biv color because it is the absence of color. If I was teaching color theory, that is what I would be telling you. The good thing about white, feng shui-wise and emotional connection-wise, is that it promotes mental clarity. So if I were going to create an artist studio, uh, if I were going to create an office where I was maybe authoring a book, I love the idea of keeping it white because then you can insert different ideas every day. So that's why when you do look at pictures of artist studios, so often they are just white open boxes on which you can put your changing ideas. The other great thing about white is that it has connotations of perfection, simplicity, minimalism. So if that's what you want to express through your design, white is the best color to get that clean, modern, sleek, simple feel. The problem with white is that it can feel cold. It can feel sterile, unapproachable. People can worry that they're going to stain it. And they should worry because white can look dingy very quickly with the smallest of stains. White cabinetry in the sun turns yellow. White upholstery in the sun kind of turns this tanny, taupey, black color. So it's just a color that's very difficult to live with if it's on a surface that's porous, if it's not on a surface that you could wet a paper towel and easily wipe off. That's why I rarely use this color in an urban environment. In city dwellings, we get so much soot, so much atmospheric smog that lands on our furniture, on our windowsills, that white, especially in upholstery and fabrics, looks dingy almost the minute you buy it. So I prefer to use white in terms of a lacquered surface, white wood furniture, white wood slatted blinds, or even a white leather, or you know I don't mind a little pleather every now and again, but something that if I could take a paper towel and literally make it damp and wipe off the surface, it would not smear and become a brown stain on my white whatever it is. That's another reason why I really hate white window treatments. Window treatments are the barrier between us and the outside. That means that pollen comes in. Even if we're not in an urban environment, there's a lot that's coming in through the cracks of those windows, especially when we leave them open. So white window treatments just look tragically gross too quickly, unless they're of a wood or wipeable variety. So those are my two cents, more than two. Those are my lots of cents on white. Let's move on to ivory. So ivory is a neutral that's essentially a white with a touch of earthiness. Sometimes it's a touch of brown, sometimes it's a touch of yellow, but it usually feels richer and somewhat warmer than white. Oftentimes we'll call ivory cream, 
People also call it pearl or even oyster, but it's just a variation on white that again has some brown or yellow mixed in. The exciting thing about cream or ivory is that it's an elegant color. It's typically associated with more traditional design styles, something that's not as modern, uh, and it can feel a little bit formal. We'll see it in a lot of southern homes. You'll see it in a lot of touches in larger mansions or even old-style castles. Cream was the go-to rather than pure white. It has a lot of understated elegance to it. The problem is that sometimes it just feels like you're white that got a little bit dingy, that got washed one too many times. We all know that Tide commercial, right, with the white socks that then start to look ivory and cream. There is nothing understated or elegant about that. So I just don't like cream when it borders on feeling stale or not fresh. And that's the same thing that traditional design can border on. Sometimes it feels stale, not fresh, not current to the time. So that is a little bit of a trap with your ivories. Let's talk about beige or tan. Beige or tan is essentially a very, very light brown. So just like brown, as we learned last week, it's a dependable color. You know, we're used to seeing large swaths of brown and light brown. It's a conservative color. Certainly no one's going to say, ooh, you took a lot of risks with your brown living room. But this color can look like you didn't make any choices. Again, it's the cappuccino effect where everything is different tones of beige, but nothing really sticks out, grabs your attention, or feels unique in the space. It can feel boring. It can feel dull, while at the same time feeling comfortable and relaxing. The thing I do like about beiges and tans is that they tend to camouflage those stains. So unlike ivory, which also betrays stains, this beige or tan can take a little bit more wear and tear without looking old or stained. So when I'm thinking about upholstery, when I'm thinking about wall paint, I'm going back to the well of beige regularly because I can always find a tone that feels like a nice blank canvas, again, for me to drop those colorful accents with pillows and throw blankets on, but won't betray me when I do have a spill or when my kids do color on the sofa or when, you know, when life happens. So those are my feelings on the most popular neutrals. And you're thinking, Betsy, what about taupe? Taupe is just a gray version of beige. So again, it's a white with just a little bit of gray and a little bit of beige mixed in. Again, it's going to be timeless. It is a little bit more contemporary than beige, which tends to lend itself to the more traditional designs, whereas mushroom or taupe tends to feel a little bit modern or a little bit more contemporary, as I was saying, due to the fact that it has that cooler tone mixed in of the gray. I really love embracing a taupe, especially for wall color, if you don't want your place to feel too cavey, but you also don't want it to feel too warm. It kind of rides the middle line nicely. But again, it doesn't really say anything. It doesn't have a lot of impact. It does not have wow factor. Ooh, you use taupe is something I have yet to hear. So there we go, guys. There are my feelings on neutrals. Now we're going to take a quick commercial break, and I'll be right back to reach into the old mailbag. Do you love learning about design? Do you wish you could take a deeper dive into the topics we discuss every week on my podcast? You can. I offer online design classes. 
just head to the website bigdesignsmallbudget.com and you can check out my online classes there. I offer three different courses, one in feng shui, one in styling, and one that focuses on furniture selection, size, etc. Choose from those classes or take all three and get a copy of my book for free. Each class is $40 or get that combo pack with the book, three classes, and the book mailed to your home for $90. Mention promo code podcast to get 15% off your entire order. Check out my classes, learn more, empower yourself so that you can go shopping with confidence and design a space that looks uniquely you while having optimum flow. Check it out at bigdesignsmallbudget.com. Before we reach into that mailbag, I forgot to start with a disclaimer. You guys, you are getting this episode much later than I normally submit. Typically, it's every Tuesday, and you are not getting this episode on Tuesday. So first things first, I wanted to apologize for that. Secondly, I want to explain. I have been working on a lot of press lately, which is very exciting, but also very time-consuming. You won't want to miss us on Lifetime's new interior design talk show, The Way Home. It airs at 11 a.m. on Saturdays, once again on Lifetime, and it will be re-airing on A&E. I think our episode will be airing later this year or early next year. Of course, I will keep you posted. We've also been doing video shoots for Today.com. We were just on local radio station here in Westchester, WVOX. We've been working with the Chicago Tribune on a couple of articles. So we have been so busy over here. And I must say that all my mental and physical energy has been going to that. And for that, I apologize. And there is like a constant helicopter presence. So I'm sorry if you're hearing that in the background. What is happening in Westchester? (laughs) All right. So now let's go to your questions because you had some doozies for me this week. Uh, So keep them coming to Betsy at Affordable Interior Design. And here are a couple of my favorites. So Catherine wrote me, Betsy, our great room is a big, long rectangle with the kitchen on one end and the family room on the other end and space for dining table in the middle. What shape do you think the dining table should be in that area? Rectangular or oval or circle? Thanks, Catherine. So what you want to ask yourself, Catherine, is what shape is the actual space for the dining area? Is the shape of the space a rectangle or is it a square? So how you can figure this out is look at your space and then subtract room for walkways. So you need a walkway, say the room is open, which it sounds like it is. You need walkways on all sides, on the two sides to pass through the dining area and on top and bottom so that way you can get through the kitchen and you can get through that living area or family room you'd mentioned. So once you hack off 30 to 36 inches on all four sides, what size of room are you left with? Chances are, based on the description here in your email, you are left with a rectangle. Now, rectangular tables and oval tables fit best in rectangles. And I will tell you that 80% of the homes and apartments that I design have a rectangular eating area and need a rectangular table. I only use circular tables about 20% of the time. Circular tables require a square dining space, 
or you could use a square table in that square space. Just make sure to put it at a diagonal, not put it like a little square donut in the space because then your chairs will push back and hit the wall. Whereas if it's on a diagonal, you have that angled line, which is longer, and you won't be hitting the wall with your chair. So I hope that helps. Make sure to hack off those walkways when you're taking your measurements and make sure that if you put a rug under this area, which I think would help define the space as it sounds kind of open right now. So if you choose to put a rug under your dining table, be sure that it's big enough so that when you pull out your chairs, you're not half on, half off. But additionally, you don't want the rug to be blocking the walkway so that to get to the family room from the kitchen, you have to walk partially on that rug. So I hope that answers your question, Catherine. Keep those questions coming. And now I'm going to answer one from Tara. Tara writes me a super fun question. I loved this one when I read it earlier today. She wrote me, Betsy, if you only had $15, what would you buy to transform your space? So I was giving this a lot of thought. And the first thing that came to mind, it just popped up in my mind and it surprised me perhaps as much as it will surprise my dedicated listeners, is plants. Plants came to mind because normally I don't have a green thumb. Normally my clients tell me, Betsy, I really want to incorporate plants. And I'm like, ugh, talk to a, talk to your local greenhouse guy, arboretum. I don't even know. See, guys? Because this is not my zone of genius. I cannot keep a plant alive to save my life, as um, as is evidenced by this bamboo sitting next to me that I'm struggling to keep alive, even though it's one of the easiest things to maintain on the planet. So recently, what changed my mind is that I went to Costco and I found a money plant. And I figured, let me invest. I want to bring more money into my life. I'm going to put it into the area of my dining room that is my area of prosperity, according to feng shui. And when I put it there, it really enlivened the entire room. Those green leaves look like a beautiful organic sculpture, and I really can't get enough of my new plant. More excitingly, I've been able to keep it alive. So transform your space in an instant with a fresh plant. Or a bouquet of flowers is another great way to do it that can be very affordable and super uplifting. The other thing that occurred to me as an answer to this question would be a diffuser. So by transforming the aroma of a space, you know, you can add this little thing in your entire room, maybe even your entire home will smell and feel different. I think that that could be very powerful for $15 or less. So check out a diffuser or a scented soy candle. Again, I'm really into those natural scents. Nothing artificial like a Glade plug-in or a Yankee candle just because those tend to bring out my allergies. And so people who have issues with perfumes might also have a negative reaction to your space. The last way that it occurred to me that if I only had $15, what would I do to make a large impact is I would probably go to Pier 1 or even Ikea and buy a picture frame or two. Because when you pop a picture frame in a corner or in a regular line of sight and put inside it a great memory or a great image of something that's special to you or of a place that you love, it can really transform your day or your outlook. So get a picture frame, put something inspiring in it, and put it in a place that you look at a lot. And that would be a great way to create a big change on a small budget. So my next and last question for today comes from Marissa. 
Marissa wrote, Betsy, thank you so much for answering my question a few months ago on coastal interior design and your crap versus gold segment about Pottery Barn. My husband definitely laughed and agreed when he heard your 65-35 split. And for those of you who don't know about my 65-35 split, I happen to think that Pottery Barn is 65% crap, 35% gold. The 65% crap is not bad quality. It's just that I think their furniture, their picture frames tend to be overpriced. Whereas I really love their fabric options in terms of pillows, sumptuous, wonderful throw blankets, drapes, and their rugs tend to be good price points. So I love Pottery Barn textiles, but really avoid them for all their case goods and end tables, which I do think the quality is there, but the styles are not so special that you couldn't find it at other stores for much better prices. You also mentioned that you're enjoying your premium membership and listening to all my bonus episodes. Thank you. Thank you, Marissa, for supporting us. I'm putting up new bonus episodes every single week, so stay tuned. So now to your question. You asked about natural fiber rugs. Here it is. Namely, when should I use them indoors? Where are the best places to put them? How should I clean them? And when should I get rid of them? I wonder about their cleanliness. I would love to hear a podcast on them in more detail. I don't think you've talked much about them, but if you have, I can't remember which podcast. Thanks, Marissa. So I may have touched on natural fiber rugs on my podcast on rugs. I think it was called Cut a Rug because I do love bad puns. But I'll tell you about my thoughts and feelings on them right now. So when you mention natural rugs, you're referring to jute and sisal rugs, just to be clear for my other listeners. I do like to use them indoors in a kitchen. I love to use them in an entryway. I like to use them in a beach house. Any place that gets a lot of wear, tear, sand, dirt, because they're very easy to clean. You can vacuum them. You can take them outside and shake them. And they're so affordable that when they get trashed, you just ball them up and throw them out. So I really love using a natural fiber rug in those high traffic areas. I do not love using a natural fiber rug in a living space, in a bedroom, in a place where you're going to be sitting on the rug to watch TV, and a place where you're going to be stepping on the rug with bare feet. The reason I don't like it is because it's kind of like an exfoliant. I mean, it's so harsh and bristly that sometimes it can feel uncomfortable. It can look a little bit uncomfortable additionally, and if I were to sit on it to watch TV, I'd get that fibrous imprint on my hand, sort of like you would if you were holding onto a basket for too long. So it's not my favorite texture if I want to feel warm, cozy, comfy. It's more of a practical choice. And, you know, high-end designers might disagree with me. If you open up El Decor or House Beautiful, you will see a lot of natural fiber rugs in high-end homes. But how often are they playing on those rugs with their children? How often are they rolling around during a game of Twister. Like these are my questions for those designers and those homeowners because I personally don't love the texture on skin. I do love the price points, like I was mentioning before, and I love to get natural fiber rugs on Overstock, on Wayfair, on really affordable sites like Hay Needle. I avoid spending a lot on these natural fiber rugs because you really can't tell the difference. The ones at Williams-Sonoma, the ones at Crate and Barrel look very similar to and have similar lifespans of those that are a quarter of the price. So don't spend a lot on these particular rugs. 
The other thing I don't love about a natural rug is that the ends tend to get a little bit wavy. They don't keep a nice crisp line. So sometimes it can look a little stretched out, a little ill-fitting. So I prefer to get the sisal or jute that are bound with the grosgrain ribbon or fabric binding on the edges just because it helps it to keep a more uniform shape. So there we go, Marissa. We don't need an entire podcast episode on natural rugs. I can answer that question in three minutes or less. Guys, thank you so much for joining me this week. Thanks for bearing with me during the delay. And I can't wait to talk to you. There will be a new episode coming up this Tuesday. You won't want to miss it. In the meanwhile, thanks to my premium subscribers. You are the ones that keep us on the air. Sign up, join for $3.99 a month, and catch all my bonus episodes. I'm recording one right after this. Also, thank you to my producer, Catherine Heller, to Aton and the Embassy Our House Band, and to Affordable Interior Design, the premier place to find our blog, to find our podcast, to find my book, and to find great design on a budget. Until Tuesday, guys, thanks so much and have a great weekend and a spooky Halloween. Bye.